comedy channel. We have no motto. The comedy channel. You laugh until you stop. Comedy is our middle name. And channel will be our last name then, right? Yeah. The comedy channel. Three-dimensional programming on a two-dimensional screen. Brought to you by a one-dimensional person. What the hell? Mottos come and go. The comedy channel. This isn't Russian. But we're always there when you need us. Get the picture? The comedy channel. The comedy channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Welcome to another edition of the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell. That's your cue, Art. And Vinny Favalli. And we are excited for you all to listen to part two of our interview with noted TV writer, Betsy Bournes, author um, of, a, I think, the best book on stand-up comedy called Comic Lives. Is that the title? Yeah, it's, it's Comic Lives. It's not Comic Liz, Vinny. Get off the Comic Liz. I know. I get confused with read and read. You know, I guess it's the context. I don't, I'm not a big fan of context reading. Just let the word be one thing all the time. Anyway, uh, very excited to continue the conversation. Boy, she's got a lot of energy, huh? She has a lot of energy and a lot to say. I guess if you're going to be writing all that sitcom stuff, you got to be pretty energetic. Yeah, you have to be able to express yourself, which uh, she did amazingly in part one. And I'm excited to hear the rest of this. So without further ado, we give you, we bring you part two of our interview with Betsy Borns. Here we go. So you're at Friends and uh, you were there for one season, I believe. I, I, yes. And I was offered, which a lot of people left friends when the big deal started happening. Um, I mean, really big deals and they, they've never gotten that big, you know, the overall deal, which, um, for people who aren't familiar with that, it's basically a studio pays you a lot of money and you go there exclusively and you're set up with an office and, you know, an assistant and you create and produce shows for that studio. And I was offered a really great overall deal. At which Disney, studio? Was it Warner Brothers? or Disney. Oh, wow. So, and, you know, my office would have been on Dopey Drive. How are you going to, you know, turn that down? I felt like I was finally at a home with my name on it. But I, you know, looking back, you know, the biggest hit in the history of the world, you know, I'll take the money. And as they say in Yiddish, nem negelt and lake, take the money and run. Um, so not the greatest, but, you know, other writers from the first season did that and not the greatest decision. So, you know, that's what I did. And um, I was getting married, you know, and it's like, I wanted a family. I'm like, yeah, it'd be good to have an office and be home sometimes. So, uh, and I really wanted to create shows. I should mention that. <laughs> and so um, that's what I did. But I'll tell you, I have never in my life worked with that level of writers. I mean, astounding, astounding. And actors, um, I mean, right? I mean, the whole ensemble. I mean, six actors. It's like right. a doing a, a, a kind of like a, like a Broadway play. Every, and they're all every, great, everyone. Yeah. Um, and and I I have you know people, writers have a thing with actors where it's like, do you Americans understand that all this stuff they're saying they didn't just come up with? Like, you know, it's like behind every great man there's a woman. Behind every great actor there's a writer. Um, but and it's not their fault. That's just people's perception. But the Friends actors were not like that. Um, the world wanted to make them the writers of the show. And they were always incredibly kind and careful to say that. And to the person, they, they were astoundingly talented. 
and nice. Like the rub, oh, they're so nice, blah, blah, blah. They were really nice, really nice. And Especially with each other, which is rare, you know, right. that, that because and you the, and, and the most famous people in the world. And again, going to Roseanne, Roseanne was taken from a trailer to being the most famous person in the world. And she had a complicated past. So it was easier maybe for them to be nice. Well, they were younger. Um, and they were an ensemble, so it wasn't all on someone, but you know, the writing talent, the acting talent, the music, honestly, uh, Kevin Bright, who was one of the executive producers, I mean, did astonishing things with music. Um, you know, so it was all Deborah McGuire, who Gail Berman has worked with a lot, you know, designed the clothes for the show, which all every week would be like, oh, it's a new hit. Hush Puppies, <laughs> Phoebe wears Hush Puppies. The company was saved. Hush Puppies was going broke. And it's like, I wore Hush Puppies to my wedding. I mean, it's like, okay. Um, her hair her hairdo was a big deal. I mean, how many shows is that? Where the, the style of-, of uh, Every week. Yeah. Jennifer Anderson. Yeah. So, so, so this was right? really the pinnacle of your writing career. I mean, you, right. you describe it. It sounds like you're describing it that way. This it, That was as good as it got. Right. It was- uh, what do you say? It got worse after that. Is it? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, no, I'm just Hold asking. On. Wait, it's not no, no, I'm, I'm just. There's just, no. Look, if I'm no going to write the Wikipedia no entry. Wait, what's that? I said, if I'm going to write the Wikipedia entry, I got to know these things. All right. Thank you. Um, which is, I say, thank you. That's my. I said, that's how you know if you're ever in a group with people and someone says something racist. There's always someone in the group who goes, "Thank you." So whenever I say thank, like, think about it. It's like the thing no one says and someone will say something offensive and there'll always be someone who goes, thank you. Like, this is what I've been saying the whole time. Anyway, um, if you think about it, it won't hit you at first, but you, you'll be like that. Like if you're at a party with older people, you know, and someone will say something that they don't realize is offensive and there will always be. Thank you. Anyway, get the validation. I love that. That's really <laughs> funny. Um, so, okay. So you're at the, you're at the pinnacle. Oh, by the way, the friends reunion, are you, um, has that happened yet? Uh, well, I was out of the country. There was, you know, a reunion, uh, not on TV, but there was no, the TV one. I'm talking about the right. one that they're doing now. Uh, yes, I believe yeah, it was postponed. And then there was, they were hinting that it was going to be like next I, you know week. What? I was thinking time. maybe not. I just remember. I was out of the country for the, you know, everybody's getting together part. Um, I was in Israel actually when we were bombed. So I was sorry I missed it. And also I had bombs going off over me. So it's like, really, this is not, again, not <laughs> a like great Tuesday. choice. That's Tuesday in Israel. Right. It's leaving friends for the first time, except the second time missing it. How could it be worse? There are bombs exploding on me. So- You weren't on Dopey Drive. Exactly, I am Dopey Drive. Um, <laughs> But so, yeah, I, I'm honestly, I don't know, because everything has changed so much with the pandemic. Right, 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 right. By the way, with the pandemic, I still would have gone to meet with Jay Daniels, even if it was an earthquake and a pandemic. Um, you'd have the mask on. And right. You'd have been like, Done. So, okay, um, I, want, I want to follow your path, and then I want to get to your book, which we're excited to talk about, your new book. Um, right. So, so you you leave Friends, you do the deal with Disney, which is a right. big deal. Was Home Improvement on the? Uh, was that Touchstone at the time? Um, they had one big hit, I think. Uh, they did. They had a couple hits. Um, I was. They can also put you on shows when you have a deal. You know, they they can assign you to shows, and I was assigned to a couple shows that I had only been on Roseanne and Friends, so I wasn't experienced with being on bad shows and <laughs> you didn't know there could be up, bad shows. Yeah. You were on two of the greatest sitcoms of all time. So the bar is very high. Go ahead. I, I just, I, I've since looked up in the dictionary, the word agape, but I just, <laughs> I, I, I was like a slack jawed yokel. It was like, ah, uh, and I'm not saying I was great or so great or good, but it was like, Oh, this is what you read about. And so I kind of weaseled out of those shows. Um, but you learn just as much from being on a show that's not great as you learn from being on a show that's great. Um, 
Although what you learn is how to do bad television, so I don't know. But but you did anyway, you did Sabrina. That was a good show. I remember that was Sabrina. and I, those were shows I wasn't assigned to. Um, it was after my deal, and Sabrina was great. I actually got to work with Frank Conniff, who was uh, on Mystery Science Theater. Yeah, and Nick yeah, Bakai, and reunited with Nick Bakai. TV's Frank. The voice of Salem the Cat. Again with the cats. What's with you and cats? I don't know. This, but my favorite thing I did on Sabrina was with Nick Bakai as the cat. Is I loved on old shows. They would show people getting electrocuted, and you would see their skeleton. <laughs> yeah. Always wanted to do that. We did it on George and Leo, the show I did with Newhart. Yep. Also, um, but Judd Hirsch. Exact. Oh, amazing. Um, but I Salem the cat was licking the inside of a toaster oven. And he's like, um, nom, 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 nom. but it was plugged in. And so he's electrocuted and you can see the cat's bones and there's a pause. And he says, worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it great when you have an idea like that and you don't have to worry about the technical part. Right. Like they're going to, yeah. they're going to figure it out. There's all these geniuses you're working with. The best. And that like Tybo was a big thing. So I did an episode with a pirate who did Tybo, it was, it was actually Billy, uh, the guy who did Tybo was a pirate on the show doing Pybo. And it's like, you could do anything. Um, you know, a talking cat, what are you not gonna do? But, so that was great. I did um, George and Leo, the Bob Newhart and um, Judd Hirsch. On CBS, that was a big show. Yes. For, I, I was there at the time and that was a big deal. And you probably worked with Lori, right? Was Lori well, the current? Lori gave me good advice, which was I was pregnant when with my twins when i went to interview with that show and i said you know they don't tend to hire people who are pregnant because they're gonna have to leave and i said you know i'm thinking of telling them what should i do and Lori said wear a loose jacket <laughs> <laughs> so That's again a great a good company name for women would be wear a loose jacket <laughs> it's uh but during that Time when I was pregnant, I also wrote a play that was based on my book club, um, which sold. And so I wore to Lifetime, I wore that was during that time that Lori gave me the good advice and she was the executive on it. I sold something that be turned into a pilot and I wore an even bigger jacket. <laughs> By that time, I was like Perry Mason. I was actually Ironside because I got so big that they had a golf cart <laughs> uh, for me. But um, I, so I had to leave that show before it was over. And the executive producers always said, uh, called my pregnancy, my little career saver. Um, because when the show, uh, I got out before it ended, but that was, that was a great show. If people can see it anywhere. It was, it was, it was, it was terrific. Cause two, I mean, you know, Judd Hirsch right. and Newhart at the top of the but you also Newhart was so old school i just remember we wrote the line medieval and he pronounced it medieval like they actually pronounced it in medieval times um <laughs> but he was brilliant i mean truly you also worked on and i just know this from hearing the stories to brian ben ben show which um remember brian ben ben that was like a show art that we thought would have uh, dream on he was a yes. star of dream on yes. Yes. which in some ways was the perfect would have been the perfect comedy central right. show. we might have purchased right. it but brian ben ben i remember there was one episode where he's in a fat suit like it was every like cliche and i know laurie i just know from being at the current meetings where everybody would be talking about reporting on their shows laurie actually had one of the few experiences Ben Ben had a bit of a temper and did not like us putting him in a fat suit. And, you know, it wasn't just a fat suit, but how it he was gained over the like top. a thousand pounds since the episode before was not explained. He was a very nervous eater. Um, but we had a scene where he was walking and he was happy about saying, he said, I'm walking on air and then fell through the floor. Um, and... <laughs> You guys were doing everything to save that show because there was a, there were high hopes. It was, and Lori had a, an argument with Ben Ben, and Lauren said she, one of her most traumatic memories in show business is getting screamed at by a guy in a fat suit. <laughs> I mean, it's like That's worthy of Milton Berle. <laughs> it was, and it was actually that was created by Robert Borden, who was on Roseanne with me. Um, but. 
you know, it's, it's, and, and Wendell Pierce, who, you know, went on to so many great things, um, was, was one of the stars and, uh, no, it was, it was fantastic. I had had my babies at that point and kept them like I had a nanny who would bring them to the set and they would be like, our, we had a late room too. And they would be in the car idling with her. And I'd like run out and go, I love you, I love you, blah, 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 and then go back in the room. So uh, that that's who says you can't have it all. Um, <laughs> but so I did that. Then I, I sold my book club pilot twice, um, which, which kept me going. What was and that called? You sold it as a play? It was the book. I, I wrote it as a play. And then my agent said, you should write this as um, a half hour. And so I sold it to Lifetime. Then I sold it to, I, can't, I think it was then UPN. Um, but they wanted to make it so different that I kind of said, it's not working. Right. And then Lifetime was doing other stuff. So um, it, it, but it's based on my real book club, which was started by Lori David. Um, and so it, it all, you know, our group, we all moved out together from New York, Larry David, right. Gail Berman, Lori, everybody. Anyway, um, so after that, uh, my agent called and said, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith have an idea for a show and want to meet with you. And I said, oh, we have so much in common. <laughs> and um, so I met with them and the show was about a blended marriage, which wasn't really a term then, but it was about Will and Jada being best friends with Will's ex-wife, Cherie. And there really hadn't been anything like that. Um, and so, you know, we, we met and we just really got along. I mean, it was sort of like, I just loved them. They were, it, it was, I think that was before cultural appropriation because I think they made me black and I made them Jewish, but it wasn't appropriation because we actually were. Um, and I, it was an amazing experience because from my experience, I had never worked, and this is true, except on Roseanne, Roseanne got in trouble for being racist, you know, in the new show. Right. But I can tell you, the only show I ever worked on before my show with African-American writers in the room was Roseanne because she said, if we don't have African-American writers in the room, I'm not going on. And so, and that's something people don't really know. Right. So I had never been in a room other than that with African-American writers. And so when I did this show, I said, I'm not hiring white writers. That's it. And our staff was, I mean, it was a great experience because of the show, but it was also a great insight into African-Americans in the entertainment business. And this was, uh, I'm trying to think, that was when Zeke was born. So it was it 2003, be, I think. It was 2003. And the show was called, just so people know, it was called All of Us. And and were you, were you because it was your show, you co-created it with, with Will and Jada, but were you the showrunner? This is yeah. the first time, so, so, so wow, like everything yeah. you've been learning and watching showrunners do's and don'ts, right. you are the showrunner now. So you yes. set the tone. It was, it was, and I would say hiring people was especially difficult because my goal, and you know, I did not want to hire white writers. I had like a shtick about it because it was, it just struck me as so weird. You know, it was weird. One, um, not not and, one token white writer, just yeah. one, one person. Hello? She was Hello? the one. She um, was <laughs> actually, there were a couple, um, one who, uh, oh, you forgot, Baby Bob, I did at some point, the Talking Baby oh, show. Oh, yeah, what was that? That yeah. was like, Look talking Who's baby. Talking? Was yeah. that post Look yes. Who's Talking? but it, it was that, but anyway, I hired the assistant from that show. He was one of the token white writers right. um, who's gone on, Jared Bush, to write Disney features. But on that show, a little known thing, talk about inside things in show business, to get the baby to focus, they, they CGI'd a mouth on him. They hired a dog trainer 
And so imagine being on a show and, and he used certain, the clicker and certain words to make the baby look certain ways. And I'm like, the parents were there smiling. Like, really? You turned your baby into a dog. Um, so we'd be there. And the other actors, you know, Adam Arkin and Julie Fisher. And it's like, they say their part and then pause. Bubba, Bubba, stand. You know, just like the baby. And it would be like, woohoo, woohoo, click, click, click. And the baby would respond, which was worse. Um, and then it's he like had- Like with Charlie Callis. Right, exactly. But, but not humping a leg. The baby never humped a leg. I've never had a dinner. I could throw any reference your way and you come right the frig back with that. I love it. No, it's it's never had a dinner is right, you know. Um, but in addition to being trained like a dog, the baby had like these dots placed. I don't want to say embedded, but placed very similarly. <laughs> you know show business this is one of the better uh secrets but so with like clay dots bubba bubba sit um it was a again great experience so i only brought that up because one of the token white writers was jared bush and um a couple of other people and other than that you know you know, Will and Jada made the effort and I joined them in trying to hire African-American um, production people. And there's a lot of talent out there that just, you know, they're like Harvard graduates who are not getting jobs, you know, who were on the lampoon who are not getting jobs. So it was an unbelievable experience and it was a tremendous insight into, um, a different world. And I actually became militant. My husband called me the angry black man during those <laughs> years. And, you know, it was a great insight, especially with what's going on now. Uh, you know, a lot of people are like, where'd that come from? It's like, I'll tell you where I came from. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a, a great experience and working with Will and Jada um, was unbelievable. They I mean, Will, and he did the show for some episodes and he just radiated, he, he radiated charisma and the guy's talent was staggering. You know, we, the three of us, I wrote the pilot and then, you know, the three of us, you know, before it was turned in, went over it and over it and, you know, they're tremendous talents, That's you know, incredible. In, a, in a lot of ways. And their kids are now like, the, right. Uh, you, and there were kids, Jaden and Willow yeah. um, were on the show um, as kids. And uh, I remember Jada or uh, Jaden played Reggie, the evil friend. Um, mm -hmm. And I think Will always wanted to take the character out of the Archie comics thing, but he didn't want to admit he read them. Um, <laughs> but it was, um, I, it was just the greatest experience. And I think Lori talked about this because she was at UPN. The show was on UPN. Right. It ran for four years there. Right. And by the way, I don't want to say seriously that African-American shows are ghettoized, but it's been, I shouldn't say this, but it's been played in, in reruns on different networks. I've never seen a residual ever. Really? So, uh, yeah, I and you know, I don't. Anyway, uh, that's a whole other show. But um, that's crazy. Yeah, but I UPN because you own the show. I mean, you're a creator, yeah. so you have yes. a, a a bigger share of yeah. nothing. So I don't know if it's you know it's like BET if they you know don't get the required amount of money, but. You know, right after this, I believe I'll be making some calls uh, to look. Yeah, I think I, I think I think you should. Hey, by the way, call back to the to your comic book. Do you own that book, Comic Comic yeah. Lives? You yes, do own I, that. I do because I called. Um, again, this is the economics degree, but I was reading about it, and I could buy the rights back um, after a certain point for not a uh, lot of money. Uh, nope, um, because. You know, once a book is, well, turns out uh, 
it's worth $895. Yeah, so the rights uh, must have been kind of expensive. Right. I wish you bought it. The book on tape, the book on tape is like $4,000. And because I am the one doing it and I make the tape and send it to you. Um, But as I was saying, when you told me that, it was also listed as being written in 1815, which was weird. And I thought, well, that's good. That's why that company... Uh, that's why that version was expensive. As a aside for that, uh, we'll do this off air. I want to talk to you. That book needs to be republished, and we, we should. That's what my husband. My husband yeah. always tells me I should write the sequel. You should. And I'm like, yeah. No, no one's interested. Yes, no, no, they no. are. They yeah. are because, but write that book is a documentary. It's phenomenal. All right, I we have to. There's so many elephants in the room we have to discuss as we wind this down. And I want to talk about so the pandemic. So you're 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 you're. you're you you do the all of us and then at this point what are you doing beyond that you're writing you're consulting you're doing a lot of exactly i'm doing um i you know i wrote i'm trying to think i wrote other pilots i then my husband in this time has become a show creator show runner um he created a show with brockheimer goliath and so we decide we sell a pilot to disney just these are the things in between but it's a drama which i've never written before and i have to say one of my major contributions was perhaps what made it not go on the air which it was this big mystery and it was solved by a button hook which for people who don't know is like the thing that when people wore like spats and like the dresses in the 1800s was the hook used to undo it and by making that the murder weapon I created something that nobody at the network or America had ever heard of. So anyway, that was my foray into drama during the story. Oh my um, God. So, all right. So, so and you, I have so the you... world, I have the world's most boring podcast, uh, which I haven't done for a long time through the Broad stage in LA. It's called the broadcast. And I interview like classical, you know, musicians and opera singers and so i called it the 24-hour expert where i don't know anything about the bassoon so i would spend 24 hours like they thought i was the bassoon expert and so i i have that podcast you can get it on um on uh you know apple whatever and it's pronounced broad not broadcast right because it's the broad stage and so it's the broadcast um i keep on calling your your book by the way comic uh live it's confusing that title we it's have to live. talk about i know i had a friend who only i hate that title it. because the book yes. is so good and the title's too confusing the right, sequel so, will have a different one so, so you, I, you, oh and then i i took a lot of you know time doing that and then i was hired on the new roseanne so right that you came back for that was you're winding up again against your will see i told you you can just say i'm leaving the room no but no, no no this is not a doll i'll go through it quickly no All no no, no. Well, you take your that. time we want to hear it Roseanne this is the Citizen Kane of podcasts episodes of the <laughs> constant. It's constant comedy when, when you're yeah. a friend of Betsy's or married to her. It never ends. Yeah, exactly. It's like Citizen Kane, except when Rosebud actually this it pops out of the fire again and another movie starts. <laughs> so Rosebud. Too. Your Rosebud was being left behind at the campsite i think because that <laughs> reared its head years later smelly cat rosebud <laughs> can i have dinner no um <laughs> wasn't an attractive child but for god's sakes um so the new roseanne the reason i got to know her and got hired is after i did the show i was in a furniture store and roseanne walks in i didn't know her she comes up hugs me and says oh my god betsy i miss you so much and i thought I have to tell her that she doesn't really know me. And then I thought, or I could go with it. And we became really close. So, um, I mean, like really close. Well, she missed you in a showbiz way, right? She knew you from the old show. She didn't even know I was a writer on the show. Did she know you or did she mistake you for someone else? That's what I'm thinking. Bonnie Burns or uh, the other, you're the other Betsy. Betsy Betsy Burns. And she never copped to it. You became I, close. She, so never she said didn't remember you, but no, she had to. If she said your name, she had to. Yeah, I, I don't know. On I some level. But we actually, she's like, come to my house in Lake Arrowhead, like the old times. I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, oh, wait. That was that's fun. A, that's that a tell right there. That was Betsy Boris. That wasn't funny. <laughs> so when the new show happened, I hadn't talked to her for a long time, but she brought me on. And when I tell you, 
she had become the kindest, nicest, most giving, sharing person in the world. She would come in the writer's room and people would pitch things and she's like laughing at them, never rejected anything. It was amazing. And when the thing came out, um, you know, she made the comment, I was so heartbroken. I can't begin to tell you because I thought of the times when she was the only person, yeah, I'll get teary, who hired black writers. Like it was such an ironic thing um, that it was, it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. So, but the show was incredible. And the fact and, that- it And a so huge success, yeah. huge success. I remember it was like number one. And yeah. not a guarantee to a be reboot that was number, number one. I, I remember being in Vegas with my husband and son and the first show came on and it was like, what? Because people thought it would actually bomb and it was just so shocking. Um, and, you know, I, I got to write the episode where Roseanne gets addicted to opioids because I thought, you know, like that was still is such a big thing. And I left the show when Roseanne left, which is another story, but, um, they used the opioid thing. I had her overcome it and they used the opioid thing to kill her on the oh show. My God. I was like, I killed Roseanne, but <laughs> you know, it was really heartbreaking. But anyway, after that, um, you know, I did other stuff, blah, blah, blah. But to get to the book, um, Take your time. Hey, got I don't, I don't like to toot my own horn, but I was the first person in Beverly Hills to get COVID. So How can get uh, you a good table. It's outside eating outdoors. <laughs> Um, by the way, Sardi's is horrible. I, the last time, well, I went there and they had canned peas. I'm like, even diners don't have canned peas, what? but that's enough. So yeah. Um, so, but, wait, so, uh, so COVID hits, COVID hits, right? I was at a convention, um, with, which I forced my parents to go to in Washington, DC. And it was inside for three days. Were you trying to kill them? Were right. you trying to leave them no, behind? Uh, you should have well, left them there. That's not the funny story. It ended up okay. But, you know, there was this thing in Wuhan. It's like, oh, thank God it's just in Wuhan. And so I go there with my parents. Apparently, uh-uh, someone in the convention had COVID. So there was no COVID. This is late February of right, 2020. Right, right. And I come home and I was, I was doing a documentary about a Hasidic singer, who's the first Hasidic singer who sold, uh, who's, who got a deal with Capitol Records. Like, stunning. Shulam Lemmer, the guy is a sensation. Um, he's managed by Sandy Wernick, who basically was the manager for all the Saturday Night Live people. Yep. Um, so I'm talking to Sandy Wernick, like, Sandy, it's good to talk to you again about Shulam Lemmer. Um, <laughs> but so I'm, I went to the after the convention to the Hasidic community where I'd never been in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. You started. And I'm like, after I find out, I've infected everyone in Washington, DC, the whole Hasidic community. Wow, and I went crazy. to see Shulam by San Francisco. I started it in San Francisco. I, I mean, it was my first big what other than my show the the biggest creation of my life was covid this is bigger um, than smelly cat it was unbelievable so i didn't know any of this and i come home from shulam in northern california having infected southern california when i got back um and my parents say we just got tested we have covid i'm like oh. what at the worst possible time, by the way, early COVID diagnoses were right. like death sentences. It was, it went on. I was not very, hardly sick at all. My parents, my dad, after six months in, or six weeks in the ER, the doctor calls from his bedside and says, it's time to say goodbye. Oh, no. So it was hor horrific. We couldn't go to him and he says goodbye. 
and we all say goodbye and we're crying. And he said, I'm ready to go. And my mother says, you are the most selfish person in the world. I'm not ready for you to go. And the doctor says, that's a little insensitive. The next morning, my father calls and can I talk to your mother? I feel a little better. And from that point, they, the LA Times did a story on us. The hospital said, we have no idea what happened. Your mom, your mom shaved them into living. She shaved, exactly. I mean, he's completely fine now. I'll send it to you. There's a story in the LA Times, oh, but it doesn't that. say my mom scared him back to life. So it anyway. It doesn't have your name in it because it didn't come up on Google. Smelly father. It's like unbelievable. So I'm locked in. I get a call from the county because I got, I was one of the you know first people tested. I'm getting tested after three hospitals said, do you feel sick? And there were no tests. So I said, no. And they said, well, then you can't get tested. So the third hospital, do you feel sick? I'm dying. So I got tested. And I guess that information from Cedars, I don't know, went to the database. So my friend is watching TV. The first case in Beverly Hills, she's like, you're famous. Oh my God, that was a big deal. Big deal. Um, so I'm quarantined um, for a month in my room. LA County called me every day to make sure I was in my room. And at that point, they didn't know like how much to trans, how transmissible. So it's like, really a month? Um, you know, my kids- And they didn't care how you felt. They, they, they were like, like, how are you? No, just as long as you're in your room, we're cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, how's everyone around you? Hey, <laughs> me here, COVID. Um, so I'm locked in there. My kids came and went for spring break. Hello! Um, and my dad was basically dying. I couldn't go there because I was quarantined. Um, and my mom, got, anyway, so I'm in there. And after a week, I think I can't talk to anyone. Um, I can't see anyone. So, you know, I took some French in high school. I'll start studying French. And I see like Zoom was kind of becoming a thing. I bet I could Zoom someone in France and I'll have a new friend. <laughs> How pathetic. I get a new friend at the age of a thousand. By the way, I have my birthday there while I'm in COVID and it was like, happy birthday. They didn't know if you could pass food in and out. There's a towel under the door. Like it was the most depressing thing. Um, and it was a milestone birthday. So I told my husband, I don't want to do anything big earlier. I'm like, thank you, nothing big. Um, so I'm talking to Maxime in Paris um, who, you know, I got through a website thing after a week. I'm like, you know, I'm going to be in here three more weeks. I'm going to do Italian. So I'm talking to literally think Guido in Italy. This isn't bad. By the time I left, I was studying six languages and I, the book is called talking to myself because not only couldn't I talk to anyone, but when I got out, my family was like, would you stop speaking Yiddish? So they didn't want to talk. No one wanted to talk to me. Um, I went on to do uh, a, an immersion course, Middlebury College, where you have to take a pledge not to speak English for six weeks. And I basically just knew Olive. So I was the only one there who was a beginner. So I didn't talk to anyone. I'm like, I didn't know the alphabet. I learned the alphabet. They give me a day. This was Yiddish. This was a, this an is, this is Hebrew. Oh, Hebrew. And, Hebrew. Right, so I'm doing Hebrew. I learned the alphabet in a day. Then I go and I'm like, that's not the alphabet. Well, apparently, not apparently, in Hebrew, there's a different alphabet when you write. Like, if you've ever seen the Torah, that's Torah Hebrew. Yeah. You're script. And you got a day to learn script. So I do that. And then, you know, after six weeks, you don't learn too much. Um, but I got a little. So then I'm with Asaf in, in you know, Jerusalem. Then I'm like, well, Yiddish would be interesting. My grandparents speak it. And that's in Hebrew. So that alphabet. So I'm like there. It's like, oh, no, we use it completely differently. What? <laughs> and we use vowels. I'm like, and Hebrew, by the way, dropped vowels in the country. So you kind yeah, of just. Whose idea was that? Whose idea was that? I'm like, it's a Jewish country. Vowels are free. Use them. Um, <laughs> There are no vowels. I mean, they are, but they just don't use them. It's like, my name was uh, C. Burns. No vowels. So 
I have two kinds of Hebrew and I'm doing Yiddish through the Yiddish Book Center. I just finished the Yiddish Book Center's immersion program, um, I, which I like because I'm younger than anyone by 120 years. And blah, blah, blah. So since then, I have been studying six languages. Um, two are basically dead languages, Latin and Yiddish. And so I'm like, okay, this will help when I get go to apply for a job in 18th century Poland um, and uh, or Rome before it was sacked. Uh, so, and I understand nobody puts fluent in two dead languages on their resume, but I well, now in all fairness, have, in all fairness, I got to jump in here. Yiddish is not dead, dead. No. The, Latin but, is dead, dead. They yeah. don't even know how to pronounce this stuff. Right. Although Yiddish. they think it's the, so if you learn it, it's like Vini Vidi Vici is actually Weenie Weedy Weechi. So you're wrong. You've been pronouncing it wrong. Right. Which a thousand elderly Jews have told me. <laughs> um, and by the way, my Yiddish teacher at the Workmen's Circle, which is the socialist organization that my grandparents belong to. I mean, I'm a capitalist, I'll be honest. So I'm getting hit with like, communism is the way to go. Everyone's a hundred and I'm there. These are all my experiences. And the teacher survived five concentration camps. Oh. And I got my husband to take the class with me. And of course I'm the class clown. So I'm like, you know, it's not a contest, but you know, a little weird, but the teacher's completely deaf. <laughs> so he's like kind of a tragic figure who's deaf. And so he would say something and the class would shout back and he'd say, no, because he didn't hear it. So <laughs> that was a great, and then it's like, capitalist pigs anyway so these are some of my language experiences and it's been amazing i i have french italian um hebrew okay yiddish pretty well um i kill at old folks homes that's all i'm gonna say um <laughs> and you know latin and now i'm learning spanish um so it's basically from lockup in covid until now. I also have started learning Vietnamese because I couldn't stand that every time I get my nails done, I feel like they're talking about me. <laughs> so I now know enough phrases that I can tell if they're talking about me. And well, I, I think when, when you do the book, which is, it's going to be so great, but the, the book on tape, seriously, of this book, is that's oh, when you're really... Right. Although my daughter, I try to imitate the Vietnamese accent and it's very sing-songy, so it's like, come on, bon, and I'm uh, gochi, and my daughter says, how are you mocking? I'm like, I'm not mocking, I'm trying to do it. <laughs> but it sounds like I'm, you know, cultural appropriation and then making fun of it, but I'm really not. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so this is this is my my thing in life. I Who's that picture behind you? The guy with the beard. Oh, okay, talking everybody, about this is what a Jew I am, just officially. Uh, this is... Uh, Herzl, Theodore Herzl, uh, who yeah. uh, was the original Zionist, right. um, because I take, for my book, I'm taking intensive Hebrew, but then I'm also taking intensive Yiddish, so I take that one down, and then this is Shalom Aleichem, uh, the, uh, who, who the great Yiddish writer, and when I do Italian, I'm not saying I'm pandering. I have Italians I put up because I do it with people in the in the different countries. Oh, I have I have De Gaulle. And that and that and that just I just want to get this straight. That helps you learn the language. No, it just when, impresses the teachers. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> and I put different pictures for each of my um, tutors of the country so they feel like ah, she's really into this one. And then I just switch them out for the next one. Who do you have for well, Italy? <laughs> exactly. Well, I had Garibaldi um, for a while, but I put in Giulietta Messina, who is Giulietta Messina. Who yeah, is, I know for Lini's wife. I yes. know her very well. So I switched her out a bit just to keep it, shake it up. And I know, um, Vinny, you said you speak Italian and you said you yes, speak- Yes, parlo italiano. Si, eh, uh, uh, parlo anche italiano, ma parlo anche di- uh, Ascento di Sicilia e Napoletano perché eh. I speak with the. No, I got I, it. I got it. Yeah. So, 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 so Napoletano, I sono più Napoletano. Uh, Siciliano è, un, è come un uh, um, differente, yeah. completamente. Dialectic. 
un lingua completamente differente, ma uh, in Napoli è solo un accento. Um, I paroli sono differenti. In Roma, uh, you say, aspetta, ma in Napoli, you say, aspetta. Uh, aspetta, aspetta un secondo. Che cazzo stai facendo? Yeah, when, when I went to Italy, I was telling Art when I went because my parents are from Italy. So I'm, I, English is my second language. I grew up speaking Italian, but very, very. My parents were from a small peasant town. So my dialect, the words I use are very endearing in to Italians in Italy because nobody knows their words. Most people are reading from a book and they're doing that that right. version of Italian. That's not that's, right. you know, you, you know, they don't know it. Italian. Most people speak classy Italian. But interestingly, I've learned from Latin that that the dialect of the South is the closest to Latin. Oh, really? Interesting. So, you know, it's it's sort of, and I've learned that la lingua di sud in Italia è come Yiddish, perché, I'm going to do this in English, but it's, they drop the end and they say like, aspe. So aspetta is aspe. Oh, they have different hand gesture. <laughs> right. And like, my family's not sick enough of me, but I'm going to speak Italian and go, ma che fanno allora? Then I practice the refined one. It's like, andiamo. You sound great. You sound fantastic. Well, well, seriously. Speak, no, I speak with someone from Italy who's Southern Italian. So when I speak Italian here, people are like, dragata, like I'm in the mob. It's like scary. And I have the like, the signs from uh, from Di Napoli, uh, ma, you know, I watch, ho visto molti uh, programmi, uh, televisioni di Napoli, because they're all, they're all mafia shows. Um, anyway, so, so parliamo so in you, italiano. You wrote the book. Is it written? Uh, I'm still doing the languages. It was going to be over a year, but it's a little hard to learn six languages, I found. It's just me, I'm here. You think? But it, Latin is so similar to Italian, has so many words in common with Italian and Spanish and French that I figure, ah, Latin's a breeze. So a little harder than a breeze. So I'm still doing languages while writing the book. But the book is part, you know, there's some serious stuff like Noam Chomsky, who I loathe. Okay, I, again. Well, in their friends. defense, you've been you've been on this podcast for almost three hours. They want their mom at that, a certain point. Maybe it's a fire. We're, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to wind up. I promise. But no, I no, 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 no. This is great. Okay, but we so the book read. is almost written. Yes, and okay, it's phew. a comedy about learning six languages. Of course, but I, it's also about. Uh, I've learned how to be a linguist and study. Languages, the origin of language, they are different. I'm god damn. Please put this in so people will know I don't have a Wikipedia page, but people like me. Um, <laughs> so I'm turning it off. That's it. Um, so okay, I'll start. Should I? Uh, so you're a polyglot, you're not just a I, well, I, mean, I started interviewing polyglots now, yeah. Um, and I just spoke to a guy who speaks 15 languages. I know, I love those guys. There was a big article in the New Yorker about them, and it's like exactly. Oh he goes into a place and he learns a language in like three weeks. Right. Right. And, and there's a trick to it. Um, <laughs> I wish you'd people, tell us. Different people have different tricks. You have to get struck by lightning. Exactly. <laughs> trick is not to be Art Bell. You can start there. No, not true. Okay. I'm turning my phone off. I'm so sorry. I'm so bad. Hello. Uh, I'm doing an interview. I love her. I don't even this know who so it was, funny. by the way. I have no idea. Okay. I'm turning it off. <laughs> I think it's a call-in. At this point, we're actually live. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing your own Larry King show. Okay, Cole, you're on the air. Oh, I can tell you Larry, Larry King stories uh, from before there was the thing called sexual harassment. Anyway, oh. Um, oh, so I like breasts. Yeah, by the way, he signed books to me with things like that in it. It's like, wow, you're lucky there were no lawsuits then. Um, anyway, uh, so Noam Chomsky, whose politics are insane, I was like, what? I know he's a linguist. What is it about? And his theory is called universal grammar. And it's that inherent in people from birth is a concept of grammar that 
we have the inherent ability to recognize how like nouns, verbs, things like that. And we just have to cultivate that, you know, but there's a method given that. Um, I've read many methods. My method is I have to associate, and I'm not kidding, every word with something. And it helps if it's something really disgusting and dirty. And sounds like it like, like I, there's a, you know, a Hebrew letter is shaped a certain way. It's like, well, that looks like an ass. Okay, that's how I remember it. Um, and <laughs> literally, then I read that a polyglot actually uses that method. But maybe because I'm, I'm not a bright woman, I don't know, is I have had to associate everything with something. And sometimes I draw a cartoon of it so I can set it in my mind. And so I could tell you the vulgar Betsy version of many things in Latin. That's um, another book right there. But it's been effective. And I found that, and I've heard this from, I interviewed uh, you know, a scientist, a, a um, neurologist at UCLA who said, that once you have a language in your brain and you any you've forgotten like i forgot my french from high school which i never really spoke once you open that box it's always there and you open the box the language is still there and i thought that wasn't true but when i was learning hebrew i started answering in french and i'm not kidding um and so it was there so I find that with all the languages, most people say the polyglots say studying more than one is not smart. You know, it'll be slower. And I said, it helps me, I swear. Um, really? And so- I have a dumb question. I have a dumb question. In, in, I've had a in, lot. When you, like, if you, is sign language universal or would it be different in different Italian? Different in every country. It's really, there's really? a diff different in every country. And, and um, yeah, like I, I actually had a chart up. I, okay. I clearly have mental issues. I learned Hebrew sign language. Like, it, it's not hard enough. Um, but yeah, different sign language, you know, and I was looking for the Yiddish one where everything would have been, hey, every Yiddish expression <laughs> is how it's like hideous my son-in-law is, how disgusting my mother is. Like, there's no, I looked for a Hebrew expression for what a good day. Nothing. It's like, <laughs> you should grow like an onion with your head in the ground. It's like unbelievable. Um, so anyway, I have found such joy, not kidding, through the lockdown. It's like, I found such joy from the languages because you become a different country. Like I, I'm, I study the, all six every day. I get to be six people today. Um, and people are different versions of themselves when they're speaking in another language. You know, I learned in Hebrew that there's a guy, Dave, who at the beginning took the name Dovid and he was hysterical. The funniest freaking guy in the world. The day the pledge ended, he's the most boring guy, David, again. I'm like, hey, for David. David. Um, um, so, but you get to be, I'm kind of the same version of she won't shut up. No, you, you, I mean, the Italian version of you was very different. You reminded me of someone that I knew that wasn't you. Well, that's, you know, so. that's a side of languages that people don't really think about. I mean, speaking for myself right. and representing humanity. Right. I, and I think the that's English gonna, language, it's going to be inspirational to read about this. I, they say the two things that prevent memory loss, and this is, scientifically, you know, proven so far, although, you know, it's like follow the science. The science is changing every day. I can't follow it. But um, <laughs> it's, it's the two things that prevent memory loss are not crosswords, not those other things, but learning a new language or learning a musical instrument because they take parts of your brain that you've never used. It's not, right, right. and so it's like my memory which isn't, you know, I'm not saying uh, I remember anything now. My memory has improved dramatically since I started studying language. So um, that's terrific. Yeah. Is, is there a name for the book? Have you named it yet? Talking to myself. Talking because to myself. No one freaking wants to hear me. It was great with the Yiddish guy who couldn't hear me and loved me. I was the class favorite. <laughs> um, this, this book is an NPR story waiting to happen. By the way, when I was on NPR, 
I was on NPR when my book came out. And the only other time I told the story about the hiccups during Born Free. Right. Some people, I didn't hear it, but people called me and said, oh, it was so great. During the ending where you talked about Born Free, they played the song with hiccups over it. I'm like, oh, that's so, oh, that's great. That's, that's so really NPR. Great. Well, God willing, uh, it's on. And, and I will consider you my twin Terry Grosses. Um, <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, Betsy, th this has been, did you have fun? Because we, yeah, we uh, had a lot of fun here. Only the most fun of my life. And I say that being a happily married woman with three children. Um, oh, one more thing. I have to plug my yes. son's podcast. Oh, please. Yeah, ahead, please. Okay. yeah. What is it? So I told you that my husband and I were introduced because we were both boxing writers, which is, I forgot that part of my career, but he was an editor of the ring magazine and I interviewed boxers. Uh, anyway, if you look at old, uh, I have one here, uh, versions of the ring, you'll see me with my hat on. There's, I'm looking at the George Foreman when he uh, knocked out, um, uh, oh my God. I'm, well, I need to study more languages to remember. Anyway, if you look in the background, there's a lady in a hat going, that Is was that me. You? Yeah, you can. So, see did you it. bond? Did you bond with Sam Simon over boxing? Because yeah. Sam Simon was yeah, a huge boxing fan. He actually asked me at one point. I mean, may his name be for a blessing, Baruch Hashem. Um, he asked me at one point to work corner for uh, a fight with him, um, and I was actually taught to box by Freddie Roach, who is, if you're a boxing person, the biggest trainer. He was Tyson's trainer everyone's trainer wow. um, and during a down and out period where he lived in his gym he trained me when i was on friends actually um wow. so that's a whole other thing but my son who's 19 and a college student got the boxing bug and is an absolutely expert in boxing um and he has been sort of a guy who sort of mentored him is Mark Kriegel, who's like Howard Cosell now. He's the boxing guy for ESPN. And right. so Zeke, my son started Zeke's Box Talk. And it's a podcast where he interviews the great boxers. And he's the only one because people now are into UFC and not boxing. So he went to Bob Arum, who owns Top Rank, who's like the biggest promoter and said, can I get an internship? And he said, we don't have internships. And my son like me is obnoxious. So he's got the internship. So he's working there, but he's got his podcast is amazing. That's so, so great. That's it's so like cool. you would stand up. It's right. like you pursuing something that he loves. My thing is honestly, leap before you look. That's what I tell aspiring people in show business is you've always been taught to look before you leap, which is great, but sometimes leap before you look. And if you want to do it, do it and learn on the job. Otherwise, if you think about it, you'll be too scared. Yeah, that's right. my experience. I think that's really good advice. So, Give us the name of the uh, podcast one more time. Zeke's Box Talk. Zeke's Box Talk. Yes, he's uh, his name is Zeke, so it was a very clever title. Um, and uh, Box Talk. And um, he interviews fighters about things other than boxing that, I mean, I've cried listening to some. Um, amazing stuff. So- there you that, go. That's incredible. We'll definitely we'll promote that in the in the, in the description of the show. And can I just leave you with? Can I encourage you to tweet more? Because the few tweets that you did, uh, yeah. could, would you give just give us some social presence? You have, because you have social okay. no social media presence. You have so much to say. You're so goddamn funny. The tweets I read were funny, and we could use a laugh. I think it's important. That's and I think I'm on Facebook. Which, I'm on Facebook. So basically, the age of the people who know anything about me are the people in my Yiddish class. Um, really? And, so you do a lot of, see, Facebook scares me. I have, I avoid and Facebook. And I'm scared of Twitter. But I'm Twitter is so rhetorical. No one cares. You're just saying it. And right. if people are smart enough to follow you, we get a joke. You don't have to engage. There's no back and forth. That's true. It's material. You're like, okay. is this mic on? You're, you're doing one liners. Okay, done. Okay. So now thank you. Uh, I've met the internet. I also have to say, you guys are unbelievable. And for people who haven't seen Vinny on Letterman, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, and for people who haven't read Art's book, this is one of the few guests that is going to plug the house. Oh, so um, amazing. I'm embarrassed to be an author next to him. And you guys are, and you've both done 
you know, you, the comedy channel, executive, it's like legendary. You guys are legends, so I'm sorry. You are too goddamn sweet. Thank you. you We're humbled by, in your presence, and and thank you, thank you so much for your time to do this. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Can't wait to read your book. Me too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow, Art. If, if, you did the transcription of this podcast with all the incredible things that Betsy had to say. That would be a book. Yeah, that was that was just an amazing look at an you know a long career as a writer in sitcom America. I mean, she really did a lot to shape our thinking about sitcoms. Yeah, I mean, working, you know, working on Friends, and yeah, she was only on it for a year, and she wrote two episodes. But you know, every to, to fans of Friends, which there are millions, every episode's a jewel. But the one she wrote, the Spelly Cat episode, is even more uh, special to a lot of people, and it gave us so much. But like, just really like working for Roseanne on on both ends of her career, you know, the early days of of, of Roseanne, and then the kind of flame out season. Uh, recently and that was you know what I, I, that was a highlight for me getting an insight into roseanne because we all heard that she was pretty tough to work with right in the early days uh and i i assume that would just like extend to the late days but then betsy said no she completely changed it yeah and during that second round and ironically she she got in trouble she in got in trouble round. For, for her politics yeah, for her politics and for saying something she shouldn't have. Inartfully, so. yeah, inartfully. Uh, inartfully, getting, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, but it also, like, some of her being difficult, I think, you know, in her defense uh, in the early years could be attributed to being she was a woman in a man's world, the sitcom world, you know? Oh, yeah, and, you know, it was nice that Betsy talked about that. The sudden fame yeah. that came to her, the intrusions into her personal life, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, you know, you can apply that to a lot of a lot of stars and a lot of stars have trouble with that. Um, and, 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 and giving um, an, an outlet for, for people like Betsy as a writer, you know, I think that's that writing staff was prob- probably largely female and that's to Roseanne's credit, but uh, what a career Betsy had from that. And then, you know, again, like Michael did, you know, the, the uh, Michael Whitehorn, you know, the, the aspiration of a writer. So there you have Betsy writing in the writer's room. And it's a pretty good job, but you're not in charge. You know, you have to deal with a fair amount of humiliation and rejection, even when you have the job, you know, pitching stories to Roseanne and the head writer. And then she's working on Friends. Again, you know, you're pitching it and she did great. And then to ultimately run your own show, you know, the one she did with Will Smith. That's amazing. That's pretty. Yeah, it is amazing. I think that's the aspiration that most, you know, most sitcom writers have, is to is to helm their own show. Yeah. Um, and and she did it. it and then with was, everything that she learned too, you take in everything that you picked up along the way, the do's and don'ts, and I'm sure that writer's room was incredible. Uh, but then, just so funny. just you know what? Just let me say one thing. Yeah. You know, again, Vinny, we've talked about this. A lot of people ask us how people get into the business. So we we usually try and talk to them about it. Now, Betsy's story of like the things she did, not only did she put herself in the right place, right, but she put herself out there. She, you know, she made she made sure she went up and talked to Lauren Michaels. She went up and talked to people who could right. make a difference, even though she was like nobody at that point. Yeah, when she pitched her book too, like to Simon and Schuster. I mean, that was from, from part one. That was incredible the way she did that. Yeah. And, well, I, and I just and just message to everybody. Yeah. You know, if you, you if you ask, you got a chance. If you don't ask, you don't. And, and the fact that she took the opportunity of the downtime during COVID to pitch and write this book about learning all these languages during Yeah, COVID. what's up with that? My That's, gosh, I can't, you know, I'm just like, I'm pretty rocky on English. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, getting, I'm having trouble with live and live. <laughs> life. I still can't say it. They made English too hard. Maybe Yiddish is easier. I don't know. Yeah. But the whole idea that she's doing that now, good for her. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's amazing. That yeah, she's she's doing that. I hats off to her. Speaking yeah. of hats, I want to go out on this one. Okay. This of all the years that I've known Betsy, and I, you know, honestly, I haven't seen her that much in the interval. But for the first year when we were working together, she wore a hat 
every day. Yeah, and she she had mentioned it, and, and that's what I knew day. her by the hats. That's why she stood out. If she didn't and wear the hat, I, I wonder if I would today. Remember. She didn't wear a hat. I, I, I know. Couldn't believe it. Well, no she does hat. have that amazing hair, and she, you know, she hair. can't hide that beautiful hair under a hat. Yes. That was a tragedy that she hid it for so long. And anyway, it's, she, and it's incredible that she's gotten uh, zero presence on the internet. So maybe this podcast will cost. Some pages <laughs> for that. Now she's got huge presence with this yes. podcast. Yeah, now she's going to be like, I want to, I want to hide again. Uh, anyway, Art, that was so great. Excited for next week. But till then, this is Vinny Favali and Art Bell from the Constant Comedy Podcast. See you next week. Bye. How was that?